What should boards do to prepare first-time board members for board service? Well, I think first and foremost is some basic board roles and responsibilities training. Woohoo! No, I know that's not super exciting. I do think, though, a lot of times a first-time board member doesn't know what they don't know. They don't always even know what questions to ask. So sometimes just a basic, here's what your roles are as a board member. Here's how you interact with you know, your executive director, here's how the board staff interface, and just some of those those basic things that some of us who've been in the industry for a while take for granted, but that new board members don't understand. I mean, some of those questions, Andy, that you and I have heard over the years about, oh, can you, you're a nonprofit, can you make a profit, right? But there's those kinds of questions that I think even new board members don't under always understand or what is a Form 990? So, I mean, I think there's some opportunity for some basic education if they really are green. Uh, I also think rolling out the the red carpet so there's a warm welcome, it's uh, kind of one of those circumstances where if you don't make it feel welcoming and inviting from the beginning, it doesn't, it's, it's a first impression that I don't think really helps carry out a good, successful board service. I've seen boards before where they have a new board member walk into the boardroom for their first meeting and everyone's in their little cliques talking and pays no attention and the board member sits down and is kind of like a fish out of water and nobody really sort of talked to them, made the, said, so excited to have you here. And I do think there's some of that that we should be doing. I mean, it's a new board member, so... Um, so I'm a believer in, in an ideal world, there'd be like a welcome letter from the board chair and the executive director slash CEO. There'd be uh, a welcome welcoming crew or at least one other board member assigned to the new board member at the first board meeting to perhaps introduce them around some time at that first board meeting to introduce, you know, the, the rest of the board members to the new board member uh, I've even seen some groups do like a social meet and greet before or after the board meeting to to get to know each, you know, the new board member if they want. Uh, so just I think that welcoming is important. And then, of course, all the typical stuff like a board orientation and about that organization, um, particularly what it's like to be a board member there, you know, with the board manual stuff. Here's our bylaws and our policies and our budget. So I think those are just a handful of things. But Overall, it's like, what feeling do we want to evoke and how do we get someone feeling great from their first pass at things and also getting them connected to the organization throughout the year so that it's it's kind of an ongoing thing, right? They get to see the programs in action. They get to perhaps if there's an event that is uh, an event for clients or families or people you're serving as an organization if there's a, an opportunity for this board member to go attend that, I think then they get to see your mission in action too. So those would be all the things I would put on the list uh, just to make it a positive experience. I think it's interesting that you you mentioned the, the more social aspects of it because that's where I've seen it become really uncomfortable for new board members that come in and they may know all the technical stuff, 
but but it's like it's like going to a new high school in the middle of the year. You just like here's the new kids showing up, and everybody knows everybody, and they know what's going on. They all know the language. The clicks are already in place, and then you've got a new person who doesn't know anybody. And so, the, thinking of the same strategies you'd use for a high school kid to get them involved would be the same thing, right? What what committee can we put this person on so that they can have some more some like less regimented conversation because board meetings are always so very like, here's the agenda. We're going to tick through the agenda items and there's really no opportunity to, to do anything other than, than that thing. Whereas a committee meeting, there's sometimes some more time to have some conversations about the organization as a whole or things like that. I think that's interesting that you picked up on that. Cause, cause my first thought is always going straight to like, you know, the, the technical details yeah. of how does this specific act, specific organization run. And and in some ways that's the stuff that is, yeah, the, it, that doesn't make for the great, I mean, it, there, it's important to know that, but right. It doesn't make for the best experience. So it's like, how do we incorporate that social? And I think you could get creative with it. Uh, I also think that idea, and I've seen these flop uh, and be awful, but I've also seen them done well when you do like that board buddy, board mentor thing where maybe you take a seasoned board member who takes the new board member under their wings and just is there kind of as a building that rapport and relationship so there's a safer place. So I think I think all of that makes makes it well-rounded enough to, to make it successful and positive. Uh, I also think, I mean, one other thing worth noting is that I think it helps when you have more than one person being brought on to a board at the same time. I mean, it feels a lot better when it's you and somebody else or there's a small little cadre of of people, few people coming on. It also makes it easier so you can kind of do all of this at once instead of at different times through the years. So if there's a way to build a recruitment process where you get, uh, you know, a few people together at the same time, it also feels like you're less alone and kind of the odd person out to, to your point, Andy. We got a, there's one board chair that I worked with who was fantastic. And she used to start board meetings with like the, the silliest little icebreakers, like, okay, let's go around the table and everybody tell me what you had for breakfast this morning. <laughs> just something, something just silly, like sort of relaxing and silly and yeah. not super serious. And it really did set the tone for the meeting. It was way less formal significantly less difficult to get through. People weren't bored. It just started off something sort of easier where everybody's kind of on the same level playing field. It was really, so when I, the first time she did, I was like, wow, that was, that was really smart. That was a really smart way to sort of kick this off with the right tone. I was always just sort of in awe of that. So having a board chair that sort of can read the room and is interested in making sure that everybody's kind of together, I think is, it's, that's huge. I love that. That's a great idea. So, uh, for all you board chairs listening out there or those who can influence your board chair, let them know that. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything, the podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. So... I'm looking for things that inspire me right now. Andy and I were just joking about this to to give you some really provocative openings so that you're like, oh my God, I've got to listen to the rest of this podcast. And I'm falling short, uh, except that I, I see a little sign 
up in the library I'm in right now that says she believed she could, so she did. So I am believing that I can do this intro and I am doing it. Bam. Do I get like a high five on this, Andy? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling the love from Andy. I hope I can feel the love from you. Anyways, welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Everything. This is Stacey Wedding. I'm here with Andy Shurek, my magical, marvelous, whatever M word you can think of co-host. And we love doing this and we love answering your questions. So uh, don't leave us hanging. Send us questions. You can find us at nonprofiteverything.com. Find us on social media as well as Discord. Basically, it's just the at sign, nonprofit everything, or tag us on any any platform you can find us. We're just about everywhere. So we're looking forward to your questions and enjoy another episode. incredibly passionate about working in the nonprofit sector, and I love the mission of the current nonprofit I work for. My challenge is that I want to grow with the organization, but we are only a small staff of four, and the executive director is the only position higher than me. Should I find a larger organization with more opportunities for advancement? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you're like the nightmare employee already, right? I've been here five weeks, and I want to know how I can get ahead. <laughs> Oh, Andy. No, really. I mean, think about, so, so I would say maybe take a step back and think about a couple of things. One, why are you interested in the nonprofit sector? Is this really where you belong? Because that's a, this is not the kind of place where, where getting to the next step, the next position is how you measure personal success, because you really need to put yourself in the mindset of measuring personal success is when I die, did I make a difference in this community? Did I do what I set out to do in a positive way? Has I, have I changed the world for the better at the end of my career? Not did I rise to the highest possible level I could and make the most money I could? Because I guarantee you there are a lot more careers out there that are going to give you satisfaction that are going to make you more comfortable with like if that outward level of success of being able to rise to the top, like the nonprofit sector is not for you. On the other hand, sometimes, and depending on what the economy is like, the nonprofit sector can be a little bit of a sort of a World War One trench situation where you might get a promotion because the person ahead of you just got shot, right? <laughs> the, the, the organizations have, it's a, it's a really difficult, it's a difficult thing to do. We always say nonprofits are basically business on hard mode. By selecting this career path, you've picked the hardest possible thing to do, which means that there are opportunities for advancement. And we see this all the time, people that are thrust into positions where they have no skills. They just happen to be a warm body who was standing in the right place at the right time. (laughs) Like, congratulations, Stargent. You just got a promotion, right? It's that situation. And so, so there are opportunities for advancement all the time, but if that's what you're thinking about, you're, you're going to be disappointed. And, and depending on the sector you're in, there are lines of people ahead of you that have way more experience than you do and have like seven master's degrees and a doctorate that are just waiting for that one position to come open because there just aren't that many art museums in the world. There aren't that many like really good 
Lord A theaters for you to be in charge of. So, so you have to be really patient. You have to plan your career path really carefully and, and really think about like, are you comfortable? Like, cause you're going to be alphabetizing nonsense for the rest of your career, regardless of what position you're in, in the organization, you're going to be doing stupid grunt work. I think, I mean, it was hilarious. I used to, one of the places I used to work and I was, I was just one of the senior executives and I was the guy that loaded and unloaded the dishwasher in the staff kitchen because it was nobody, because I was number one there at 10 o'clock at night and yeah. I didn't want the dishes sitting in the sink overnight because we were going to have an ant yeah. problem the next day. So I'm the one in the kitchen unloading and loading the dishwasher. Was this part of my career path? <laughs> like I, I really dig dishes. I'm going to definitely like work for years so that I can load and unload the dishwasher <laughs> at this place. But the reality is you're, you're going to be the one empty and trash. Somebody's going to ask you to paint lines in the parking lot. That, that's just the nature of the work. And if you're more concerned about sort of your position and hierarchy and how fast can I promote myself is you need to be, you're in the wrong business, buddy. This is the, not the place for you. Well, <laughs> I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm in shock sort of taking in everything you're saying and here's why. Okay. I don't disagree with you. However, this person did not say you can have both. You could have a desire to want to grow and do good. Those can both exist, right? And that's what this person is saying. I'm passionate about my work in the sector. I love the mission of my organization. So clearly, they get that, right? Like, they've got that piece of it that is, is something that probably motivated them to begin with. They want to grow. I mean, it, when you're new and younger in your career, you want to grow. So I'm going to tell. So I, I see absolutely nothing wrong with holding both of those mentalities. And I think you can absolutely do it in a small organization. So I'm going to share my own story here. I worked many moons ago at a nonprofit that when I got hired, there were two full-time staff and one part-time staff. So, right. I was the fourth staff member, the third full-time staff member. So I get you, the person who wrote this, I get you. Okay. And so, and I'll tell you what, I felt similar on the first week of the office or the first week I remember being there when I was told I would have to share a desk and share a computer with my boss. And I'm like, dear God, what have I got myself into? Right. And I literally was able to grow and create new programs and new donor relationships and new uh, communications tools, our first annual report, right? Like I got to do it all which was tremendous growth. Now, if this person is saying it's just about the position of money, yeah, it's probably not going to happen right away. And who knows if there's only, you know, but but if you can look at it as growth, like I want to I want to know what this person means by growth, because to me, if it's growth about just I want to learn new things, I want to have new opportunities. There's no better way to do it than a small nonprofit, because you're going to wear 100 hats to your point. So like battleground, right? So I think you can do that. And you also can, at the end of the day, who knows what that executive director's plans are. People are burning out faster than ever. So I also think, depending on how long you've been with the organization, perhaps it's an opportunity to say, hey, some of my, like, here's where I'm hoping, what I'm aspiring to do at some point. Someday I want to be an executive director. Can I tag along with you, ED, to some of your meetings to just sort of watch or shadow? So I, I guess it depends 
if you're willing to put in sort of the legwork and realize. And, and so like from my personal experience, I grew and learned more that six and a half years than I've grown in my entire career. And it was because I was with a small organization. And guess what? I did get promoted. They did figure out how to create new titles for me because they wanted to keep me and give me pay bumps because I was good. So like, I do think there's room for it. Uh, and I don't think you're the devil because you asked it, even though Andy does. So <laughs> I never said that. And I agree <laughs> with you that small organizations are a great way to learn things that are completely beyond you right now. And, and one of the best ways that you can do one of the best things you can do is look at your organization that you're in and see what they're not working, what's not working very well. And then take that on, especially with a staff of four, there's stuff that's not getting done. And if you're capable of doing it, jumping in there and learning how to do it is a fantastic way to sort of grow your skill set. I think, I think where Stacey and I disagree is that growing your skill set and advancement are two different things. I think, I think growing your skill set is you should, everybody should be doing that all the time, trying to figure out how to make themselves indisputable or indis, uh, make themselves. What's the word I'm looking for? In, indispensable. Indispensable. Yeah. The word I'm looking for is indispensable. Make yourself indispensable for the organization by learning new things. What that isn't going to get you is more money and more fame. That's, that's, that's a different that's a different domain. Do you think opinion. though? So do you think that though? So here's where I want to push back on this. So if you show initiative and you grow your skill set because they are different things, right? Growing skill set and advancement are two different things. But I think growing skill set and taking initiative can absolutely position you for advancement or people creating things for you that they didn't even know they were going to create because they don't want to lose you. So, I mean, I got some hokey VP title way back when that I I don't think they ever thought they were going to have a VP of whatever. So, but it was like, all right, we need to give her a pay bump. She's really helped us. She's doing the work of about about three people and we're going to make it happen. So like I did advance, but it was because I took the initiative and had grew my skills. So, so I think Maybe you are, I don't know if we're saying the same thing, Andy, but my thought is, yeah, if you're coming in and you're like, I just want to advance without doing the work, then forget that you're in the wrong industry. <laughs> if you're yeah. coming, if you're coming in and you're willing to roll up your sleeves and do some of, some of that hard work and the stuff you never even imagined yourself doing and, and you just take, you're like a team player, then absolutely. I think there's potential and I guess it's having a conversation with your ED, right? Like having a conversation with the executive director. What is What are the opportunities for someone like me, right? Like if, what do you see as opportunities? I'm not, you know, I, other than I'm not going to off you executive director so I can get your job, right? But like <laughs> what are the opportunities? So I don't know. Maybe we are saying the same thing, Andy, when we talk through it. What do you think? No, I don't think we are. You don't think we are. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I, I think you're. I, I think there are two perfectly valid opinions about this question. <laughs> Stacey <laughs> thinks that if you work hard and um, try your best, that good things will happen. And I think if you work hard and try your best, you'll probably be disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what, what? How sad. <laughs> this is why I still do have. Uh, some bright-eyed, bushy-tailed. Even as jaded as I get, I still have a little <laughs> bright-eyed, bushy-tailed in me. So <laughs> thank you to the question asker for bringing it out every now and then. 
organization tends to receive quite a few memorial donations. Typically, we send a tax receipt slash thank you letter to the person who donated and then notify the family of the deceased that a donation has been made along with the name of this person. Is there anything else we should be doing? Perhaps a call or email to the family of the deceased to connect with them and share how their loved one's legacy lives on through our work. What I love about the person who wrote in on this is that it sounds like they're already doing some really fundamentally good things, right? Acknowledgement, letting letting the family know someone has donated in honor of the loved one, in memory of the loved one. They didn't say that they included what that donation amount was, which is good because that's a big no-no, right? You don't ever share what the donor's gift size was. You can say, hey, you know, Stacy Wedding donated uh, in, in tribute to so-and-so, but you don't say how much. So kudos to the person for already having that. So I think there's a few things that I've seen uh, both on the the person who's made donations in memory of folks, but also just seen out there in some of my research. So there is a really cool opportunity if the person is willing, the family of the loved one, right, of the deceased, if they ever would want to tribute in your newsletter, or maybe you do something on social media just to say, you know, we're, we're paying tribute to this wonderful soul who here was their connection to our agency or here's why the family chose them. And we just wanted to, to share a bit about them and their story and how through the legacy gifts that were made and, and the memorial gifts made and this person's honor, um, we're now able to do this with the money. So I think that kind of covers a couple things. You're really paying tribute to that person. And that can mean a lot to the family who's still around after their loved one passes to see something like that. Uh, Some people won't want that, right? So I think this goes back to that relationship and being able to have that conversation, being able to share what those dollars did do in, in memory of that person. Again, impact of gift, like we would do with anything. Um, And I, I also think that there's some, some things I've seen because I will say as a donor on the end, when I'm making a memorial gift, the, the questions that come up for me most often are, is the, is the family going to know <laughs> that I made this gift? Because I don't want to be obnoxious, but I also like about, oh, I did it. I need credit. But I also want them to know that, that I care about them and I cared about their loved one and did, and, and did make a donation. And so what is the process? So I think if you don't have that outlined on your website or wherever it is that people go that to make the memorial donation sharing, here's the process. When you make a memorial donation, here's what we do, is huge because very few organizations seem to do that well. And so it kind of keeps you wondering as the person who made that donation. I've also seen some that allow you to fill out your own little note or or card um, online to the family that can either get sent directly to the family or if you want the organization to pass it through. So there's there's... And that takes a little more sophisticated technology, but it all exists. And I mean, the last thing I would say to think about, and this is going to seem a little strange, but I've seen it and it can work wonders. So this idea of peer-to-peer fundraising. So for those who, depending on what level of involvement the deceased had with your organization, if they have a family member who really uh, knew about their involvement with your organization or cares about the organization as much as they did, 
I mean, there's there's opportunities for them to create their own kind of tr- tribute page to their loved one, personalize it with their story, and then say, "Hey, in lieu of flowers, or in or it's the one year anniversary of so and so's passing, and we'd like to invite you to to join us again in keeping their legacy alive by making donations." I mean, I. I've seen people make raise a lot of money uh, doing that kind of stuff because family and friends want want to show <laughs> some kind of condolence or support. So those are just a few ideas. I'm sure there's many more out there. So I think the the one thing I'd ask is how do you prevent it from being? Um, it feels like you know you're you're talking to somebody who's especially when you're reaching back out to the family. You're talking to somebody who might be vulnerable. And you don't want them to think that you're using their grief for the for the organization's gain or anything like that. Is there what what would you think of like how would you navigate that? What's the best way to navigate that, do you think? I think it would just really really be about that relationship and sort of seeing where it lands. So probably not fresh or right away. You know, the first call might be a we are so sorry to learn about so-and-so's passing. Is there anything you need right now? Um, is there anything we can do for you right now? And I think it's truly that simple. And then it might be you you flag it for several months later, checking in, just truly checking in. You've been on our mind a lot. And, um, you know, we actually were thinking about doing a, a highlight in our newsletter about um, – your loved one wondered how would you be interested in that? Like just with no other, we're not looking for anything other than to show people um, what impact this person made and what, um, how memorial giving can help our organization continue to do what it does. And so I think it becomes, it's just all based on that relationship. So it's not based on the money. And like, you know what, if you don't get the vibe or the family seems short or like I've seen some people, I mean, I had a dear friend who had ALS and passed away from ALS and his wife went through a lot with him near the end. And she was kind of done. Like at that point, she was like, I'm tired. (laughs) I've been, I've been caring and doing, I've been playing the caregiver role for a while now. I kind of actually want to forget this part of my life that was so hard. And so I think that comes from just emotional intelligence and listening and caring and asking questions, but also being able to read it. And and I do think donors who, like donors will give you the sign, right? If they're like, oh man, I just wish I could. So, you know, my husband would have been so happy if he would have, if he would have known, uh, if he would have known this was happening or, oh, he loved your organization so much. Like if there's stuff like that, that you go, okay, that to me is a little bit of an opening to say, well, should we explore some other ways to help keep his legacy alive while also letting others know they can do the same for their loved ones? So, so I do think it's about that. And so it's a great question, Andy, because I think people don't want to be like chasing funeral homes or right. Like (laughs) no one wants to do that. Yeah. The tacky side of fundraising. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So Stacy and I are always joking about how the intros and the outros are the hardest part of the thing that we do. So we're going to ask for your help. So I've written the first two lines of a haiku and if you remember, a haiku is five syllables and then seven syllables and then five syllables. So I've written the first two lines. And what I want you to do as a listener is send us what the last line is. So here's the haiku. 
thanks for listening to nonprofit everything. And then you have five syllables to finish that. So send us your five syllable ending to that. And we will, we will feature it on the, the episode after you send it to us. Mm-hmm.